title of our lesson is The Relationship Between the Generations. One generation arises, another generation rises, and other generations age out and move on to their eternal reward. As we have two opening passages, I'd like all of you to open up into your Bibles. Now, we're going to be going to two passages in the Old Testament for our beginning point of reference. 1 Kings chapter 12, and then we're going to go to Proverbs chapter 30. So if you have your Bible, and if you can read, I'm going to ask you to read with me. And to provide a little emphasis to this, here in a moment I'm going to ask all of you to stand in the honor of the reading of the Word of God as we consider this topic, the relationship between the generations. We're going to go to 1 Kings chapter number 12. So please open your Bible And if you can stand and if you can read, please do so now. And we're going to read these two passages from the Old Testament. Please join me if you can stand and if you can read. All right, here we go. We're going to read together 1 Kings 12, 6 through 11, all together in unison. Let's begin. And King Rehoboam consulted with the old men that stood before Solomon his father while he yet lived and said, How do ye advise that I may answer this people? And they spake unto him, saying, If thou wilt be a servant unto this people this day, and wilt serve them, and answer them, and speak good words to them, then they will be thy servants forever. But he forsook the counsel of the old men which they had given him, and consulted with the young men which were grown up with him, and which stood before him. And he said unto them, What counsel give ye that we may answer this people who have spoken to me, saying, Make the yoke which thy father did put upon us lighter. And the young man that were grown up with him spake unto him, saying, Thus shalt thou speak unto this people that spake unto thee, saying, Thy father made our yoke heavy, but thou make it lighter unto us. Thus thou shalt say unto them, My little finger shall be thicker than my father's loins, And now, whereas my father did laid with you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father hath chastised you with whips, but I will chase you with scorpions. Thank you very much. You may recall, don't don't be seated, not quite, almost soon. You'll recall from this Bible story, this is King Rehoboam. When his father Solomon passed away, he ascends to the throne. He's offered a challenge to reduce the tax burden He consults the old men, he consults the young men, and he gets two different answers, and he goes with the young men's advice. And the point of the story is not about taxation. The point I'm asking you to glean from this is to note that there was tension between the generations. All right? It's a well-known story in the Old Testament that illustrates the tension and the disagreement on how to respond to a given circumstance between the older men and the younger men. And if you know the story, you'll recall that the younger men's advice turned out not to be particularly good. But we're not going down that road. Turn with me now to our second passage, and let's read another passage that illustrates the common human problem of tension between the generations. This is from Proverbs chapter number 30. Proverbs chapter 30. We'll read together verses 11 through 14. Proverbs 30, 11 through 14. And you'll see that we have a passage here that's describing tension between the generations. Shall we read together Proverbs 30, 11 through 14? Here we go. There is a generation that curseth their father and doth not bless their mother. There is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and yet is not washed from their filthiness. There is a generation, oh how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are as swords, and their jaw teeth as knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. Thank you. You may be seated. Now the passage from Proverbs is illustrating the same general point that there is tension between the generations, and that this, per- this tension is a common human problem. Now, 
as we consider this, we can say this as a beginning area as we consider different generations. It's very common. In fact, it's almost a near universal phenomenon. I will not say universal, but perhaps very near to being a universal phenomenon, that gener different generations see things differently. Now, that is a function, in my opinion, from the fact that we live in a fallen world. If we lived in a perfect world, we would find, I believe, that all of us would see things wisely, correctly, and in the same light. But we don't. And we don't for a number of reasons. First of all, our perspective is not necessarily always accurate. Plus, we have different circumstances that arise with the passing of time. And those circumstances, of course, shape the opinions and shape the inner sentiment by which you look at the world. Now, <clears throat> being that we're not going to, in any you know, as far as I can see, we're not about to escape living in a fallen world. What we need is we need to look from Scripture and see what kind of advice we can find in the Bible to see how different generations can interact in a better way. It doesn't necessarily have to be filled with tension, but let's look at some of the circumstances and some of the tensions that are very common. Now, essentially... <clears throat> There are really two possible ways that generational relations can function. And this is worthy of us thinking about because, as I said at the outset here, uh, we're having a wedding tomorrow. The wedding implies we have a new household with a new generation that shall arise out of that union. And that happens all the time. So one generation arises, a new generation arises, and the old generation passes on to their reward, and there are several generations in between. Now, the scenarios by which these generations can interact fall into really two different categories, two different big possibilities. The first one on our outline, for those of you that like to follow along, on our first point there, the first point is this. One generation can strengthen another. That is possible. One generation can encourage, strengthen, and be of value to another. Now, this is going to generally occur if two things unfold. The older generation must teach. The older generation has a duty and a responsibility to teach. And the younger generation must remain teachable. The older generation has to be willing and make the time and the energy take the time to do the teaching, and the younger generation has to remain teachable. Now, a couple of passages on that, and these, there are a number of, of passages we could look at, but I've got a couple on the outline. I'll just read into the record for you these real quick. So Psalm 71 and verse 18 reads like this, Now also when I am old and gray-headed, O God, forsake me not. Until I have showed thy strength unto this generation, and thy power to every one that is to come. Psalm 145, verse 4, it kind of reads in a similar vein. Psalm 145, verse 4 reads, One generation shall praise thy works to another, and shall declare thy mighty acts. And then we have a beautiful passage in Isaiah 58. You may recognize these words. It's a bit of a prophetic word regarding this topic of generations. Isaiah 58, verse 12 reads, And they that shall be of thee shall build up the old waste places. Thou shalt raise up the foundations of many generations, and thou shalt be called the repair of the breach, the restore of paths to dwell in. So here's our first possibility. One generation can do a good job at teaching, and the next generation and following generations can do a good job of being teachable, and thus much of the tension that might arise would be seriously and significantly reduced. But of course, there is another possibility. And the second possibility appears to be more common. It appears to be usually what happens, although not always. The second possible scenario is that there can be massive rifts 
between the generations, great breaches of understanding in which they see the world so differently that the tension and the drama and the conflict between the generations is great. Now this unfolds either because the older generation does not teach and or the younger generation is not teachable. Either the older generation has not taught or the younger generation is not teachable or maybe some combination of the two. Now there are a lot of illustrations of this that we can find in Scripture. So there is one great illustration found in the book of Judges. Near the beginning of the book of Judges in chapter number 2, when Joshua had died, and we have a new generation arising at the beginning of the book of Judges, we have this verse. Joshua 2.10 reads like this, And also all that generation were gathered unto their fathers, and there arose another generation after them, which knew not the Lord nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. There are many places I could turn. Let me read from you, for you from the Old Testament prophet of Micah, chapter number 7, verse number 6. Again, this illustrates the tension and the problems between the two generations, the rift, the distinction, the difference in the way they see the world and the drama that unfolds because of that. Micah 7 verse 6 goes like this, For the son dishonoreth the father, the daughter riseth up against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies are the men of his own house. Well, that's kind of a sad circumstance, but it's not particularly unusual, unfortunately. The gospel of Mark describes it in this way. We have sort of a prophetic word from the Gospel of Mark chapter 13 and verse 12. You'll probably recognize this passage. Mark 13 verse 12. Now the brother shall betray the brother to death, and the father the son. And children shall rise up against their parents and cause them to be put to death. All right, so we have many other places we could go. So the question before us on this particular topic is this. What's going on in our time? Is there tension between the generations? Is there not? How great is that tension? What is that tension like? Now we can look at this in a collective manner. So we, and we're going to do both, really. Tonight, this morning as we talk, we're going to look at this in a collective manner. And we're going to eventually look at it perhaps in a little bit of an individualistic manner. So sociologists have done a lot of work on this topic in in recent decades in modern American history and have examined American history and really Western history as well. I say Western civilization because what's happening in the United States of America is the same thing that's happening in Canada and in England and France and Germany and Norway. Pretty much all of Western Europe is following the same paradigm. All of the Western world is following the same paradigm that we're going to be looking at right now. Now, some of you are familiar with what we're going to look at, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the second portion of this outline. So the second part of the outline is what is the profile of recent American generations? How is this working out? So we're going to look at it in a collective sense. How is this working out in our nation, in our culture as a whole, in our civilization as a whole? How is this working out? After a little while, later on this morning, we're going to look at it, try to look at it uh, individually. I'm going to to encourage you to look at it individually, not collectively, but individually. But we're not ready for that yet. Now, this topic has been explored by a lot of uh, historians and sociologists for a number of decades. And there are a lot of different resources you can access. And I've gotten my library collection of probably half a dozen books that over the years I have read on this topic. And there are a variety. Probably the one that I, if, if, for those of you who find this topic interesting, if you want to look at one book that is probably the gold standard, at least so far, it's a book that was written about 20 years ago called The Fourth Turning. Now, The Fourth Turning is some of the terminology that I'm going to use. The different generations are given different names. Not every researcher uses the same name for each generation. 
Different researchers also divide the years between one generation and the next a little bit differently. The year is that, that you divide the one from the other is not a sharp line. So different researchers have drawn the line a little bit this way or a little bit that way chronologically. But that's all kind of just minor stuff. The main concept is you do have distinct generations and they do seem to have distinct qualities speaking collectively and unfortunately you and I belong to one of these generations you belong to one of them you probably don't really belong to the you know more than one although some of us are kind of on the edge and these distinctive generations have certain qualities certain certain innate ways of functioning that seem to be pretty pervasive within that group. And it's not to say there are not exceptions. So let's just look at this second sec portion of the, the outline there quickly. I'll try to go through this rapidly so we can turn the outline over and get on to, back to Scripture. Now you're going to see that I've got five generations lined out. Now what I've done, actually we could say six, but what we've done is with the first generation we're going to consider is called the GI generation. Now, many sociologists group the GI generation and the one that followed them immediately, the silent generation, many of them group those together because the qualities that those two possess are very, very similar. Essentially, the silent generation was following such a dominant group that the silent generation essentially rode on the coattails of the, those who were just a little bit older than them. So the second generation, now sometimes the GI generation is called the great generation. Perhaps you've heard of that. The second generation we're going to consider now is the boomers. The boomer generation is well known. Third one, we have what is called, at least what the, the researchers um, who have done their work in the fourth turning, they call it the 13th generation, sometimes called the X generation. Now, they call it the 13th generation because that's the 13th generation in North American shores since the settlement of European civilization in North America. That's why they call it the 13th generation. And their research is so complete in this generation. This is the reason this book is kind of the gold standard. They track this all the way back to the 1400s and the Wars of the Roses. That's pretty thorough historic research going all the way back to... Uh, <laughs> you know, Henry VII and the Battle of Bosworth Field. <laughs> now, following the 13th, we have the millennial generation. And then we have, rising up now, the youngest one that can be identified, really, that is starting to have characteristics and can be identified, and that is what is usually called the Generation Z, or sometimes called the I generation, as in iPhone, iPad, all that kind of stuff. Now, on those generations, again, these are just generalizations. I've put a name of someone that maybe you've heard of that is sort of a prototypical character of that generation. So all of us know John Wayne and the type of characters he's played in the many Western movies he portrayed. So he is sort of prototypical. His characters in the movies we've all seen typify the GI generation, and to some degree the silent generation. The boomer generation is typified rather well by Bill Clinton. The 13th generation is typified reasonably well by a gentleman most of us know a little bit about, Elon Musk. The millennial generation is typified by this gentleman reasonably well, Prince Harry, <laughs> Lady Diana's second son. And Generation Z is typified by someone I'd not heard of until I did some research. But this young lady's name is Charlie D'Amelio. Now you might say, well, I've never heard of Charlie D'Amelio. Well, there's probably some young people here this morning that maybe have. Charlie D'Amelio is a young lady who is on TikTok, who apparently is some sort of a dancer and has 151 million followers, all of which are probably much younger than myself. Now, in terms of ages, in general, as you might think about yourself, uh, the, the, the GI generation is essentially gone. Today, they would all be approximately 100 years of age or older. The silent generation is still with us. 
80, approximately 80 to 99, and that generation is, has many still with us, but their characteristics are a lot like the GI generation. The boomer generation is still alive and still in many respects kind of running things. They run from approximately 60 to 79. The 13th generation runs approximately 42 to 59. The millennials are from about age 24 to 41. And Generation Z is 23 and below, and they are just emerging as young adults. Now, as we consider some of the characteristics, let me run through those real quick for those of you who are not familiar with this topic. Some of you are. Pastor Gaiman has spoken on this topic a number of times and in a very eloquent way, but let's run through some of the qualities of each. Shall we get started now? Over to the right, you will see the GI and silent generations. You'll find some of these qualities. Are you ready? They generally are tough, or were, hardworking, dutiful, trusting, physically deprived, physically deprived. The, the, most of them can recall, or many of them, were shaped by the Great Depression, which left a lasting impact upon the way they saw the world. Their attitude generally was materially focused. They had a material focus. They did this, did this not necessarily out of covetousness, but out of a love for security, because their lives were shaped in the Great Depression when they had very little security, and they said, I will never be hungry again, and I'm going to work like a maniac to make sure that, and save, 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 to be sure that I am never faced with that again, like I remember when I was 14 years old and went to bed hungry and barefoot. We'll skip over it where it says S part. I'll come back to that. Meanwhile, the next generation's general qualities. These people came of age primarily in the 19, late 50s and the 60s, 1960s, early 70s. Their qualities were, and again, I, I didn't make this up. I'm, I'm leaning on the researches of others. So this, is not, this is not Reed Benson's uh, information here that I'm conveying in this particular section of our outline. Their qualities are idealistic, intellectual, pampered, ambitious, physically sensual, physically sensual. The 13th generation, drop on down. Again, we'll come back to S part. The 13th generation, let's look at their qualities. Now, this is a quality that, that I, I believe I'm a member of the 13th generation. I'm at the very upper edge of the 13th generation, and my wife is a little lower down the pecking order, a little behind me. The qualities of the 13th generation, she's far younger. In fact, she barely made it out of the millennials. Isn't that right, Julie? <laughs> the qualities of the 13th generation are pragmatic, pragmatic, self-made, risk-takers, morally ambivalent, morally ambivalent, and their general attitude, oh wait, did I skip that on the boomers? Sorry about that. This is important. Back up at the boomers, the general attitude, that R word is rebellious. The general attitude of the boomer generation was largely rebellious. Now, of course, there are always exceptions. In fact, there's a lot of exceptions. We're talking about the broad general pattern, not the exceptions of which there always exist when you're generalizing. Isn't that correct? When you generalize. Now, back to the 13th, so they're the 13th generation, pragmatic, self-made, risk-takers, morally ambivalent. Their attitude in general is conveyed by these two words, skeptical, cynical. Skeptical and cynical. Skeptical and cynical. Dropping down to the millennials now. Let's go to the millennials, of which there probably are a lot of millennials here today. Their qualities are clever, risk-averse, risk-averse. They seek to avoid risk as much as they reasonably can. Entitled, spoiled. Sorry, I didn't make this up, so don't take it. That's, that's not my assessment. This is the assessment of the many who have been looking at this. 
So you have clever, risk-averse, entitled, and spoiled, in which, are, remember, there's always many exceptions as well as the general trend. The attitude is, that R word is, resentful toward elders. Resentful. And now Generation Z. Now Generation Z, it's been a little hard for researchers to re accurately assess this because they're still relatively young. But most researchers in the last several years believe they can begin to see what this generation is going to be like and what they're going to be like on the rest, generally for the, the rest of their life. Okay? Because most of these attitudes are developed in your late teens and early 20s. By 21 or 22, the concrete is dry. <laughs> okay? <laughs> so Generation Z, iGen, their qualities are reclusive, cautious, physically non-sensual, physically non-sensual. That was surprising to me. Virtual relationships. Now, there are two factors that have caused Generation Z to develop in a way that's different than the former generations. The two factors are, number one, the overwhelming dominance of the cell phone and the, 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 the highly developed cell phone. The millennials are pretty comfortable with that. But iGen is more than comfortable with it. iGen is more than comfortable with it. The cell phone and the iPhone and the iPad and so forth is really largely to some respects, that's their world. So their relationships really are largely virtual. And compounding that and developing that right at a point when they were coming of age was this three-year window of COVID in which it enforced them and compelled them and demanded that they be, be separate one from another, reclusive, stay at home, don't go out, don't gather, don't touch, and stay away from people physically. Physically, you cannot come together. Now, for those of us of my age, when they told us that, we're like, well, try to stop me. And, or if we did do that, we were, we perceived that this was going to be hopefully a temporary situation, and we reverted when they lifted the restrictions, we went back to our old ways. But for Generation Z, for iGen, this came at about right when the concrete was drying, so to speak. And so for them, that became somewhat normal, and it, it reinforced their, already, uh, their, their tendencies that they already had for virtual relationships due to the ubiquitous nature of the uh, iPhone and so forth, in which they were already leaning toward being reclusive and cautious. Now, the, the uh, negative attitude... I really probably should say attitude right there. But their attitude is generally subservient to the new values. Subservient to the new values. Now off to the left, let's look at this quickly. You'll see I've written to the left in italics. At the very top, we have an old value system, a biblical worldview. Now the GI and silent generation, they formed their ideas when they were young, when essentially Western civilization was still largely operating in its institutions under a biblical worldview, a biblical paradigm. The schools, the universities, the governments, all the great institutions were still teaching in the 1940s and 50s a lot of biblical principle. They were the last generation, though, to have that. And the way they looked at the world was largely still a biblical worldview. Now, that changed with the boomers, and we arrive in the 1960s and 70s, and of course, many of you are familiar with what's called the Cultural Revolution, and the boomers were the leading edge of that with their idealistic and intellectual ways in which they said, we've got some new ideas, which they began to demand come to the forefront. So the boomers and the 13th and the millennials are essentially all in a transition zone from the old worldview, which was largely biblical in our institutions, which began to weaken and weaken and have continued to weaken to the extent that now we arrive down to the new generation arising up, Generation Z, 
in which the old worldview appears to be so faded and weak that we might even say it is almost gone. And there is a new worldview that Generation Z is very comfortable with. Very comfortable, even subservient to. Now what we're going to call that new worldview, I'm not sure. And is that new value system completely in place? I'm not sure. That's why I put a question mark at the bottom. And what shall we call this new value system? Maybe I put on the page neo-Marxist. That's kind of a broad term that catches a lot of things. Maybe that's a good thing to call the new worldview that is emerging and is really becoming pretty strong and dominant now that has replaced the old biblical worldview that was still in place in the 1940s and 50s when the GI and the silent generation were coming of age. All right? Now, I'm going to come back to what says S part. I've left that for last because, well, first of all, it's a little sensitive and just a little embarrassing to talk about, but it's revealing. Now, I accidentally ran across this information as I was studying these generations, but it seems very revealing and reinforcing of what I've already described with these other qualities. Now, S part stands for sexual partners. The number of sexual partners that each generation, on average, has over the course of their lifetime. So you might plug the ears of the, the children sitting next to you, but we'll try to get through this in a way that I hope is somewhat discreet. <laughs> Most, now you say, how do they know this? Well, they've done lots of polling and lots of research. That's what these people do. And they've got this figured out, and I, I believe it's, in my opinion, I think this is accurate, what I'm about to share with you. Uh, by the way, most of these sexual partners are, most of this number occurs in the earlier years of adulthood. So by age about 25, you know, most of them have already occurred. So really it's, it's in that young portion of life when you are developing your worldview and the rest of your life, you're going to be dragging that worldview around with you, which probably isn't going to change much. You may tinker with it a little bit, but it's pretty much set by the time you're 24, 23, 25, 26. It's pretty well set. So let's hear the numbers. For the GI generation, the, the number of sexual partners was three. The average number. For the silent generation, it was five. You say, well, that sounds like a lot. Well, for a lot of people like us that are here, that are, you know, somewhat very old, very, very old-fashioned and biblical and a bit prudish, that is a lot to me. <laughs> but hold on to your hat. The boomer generation, the same number is 11. It's a huge distinction. And this is because the 1960s cultural revolution also involved a component that was usually called the sexual revolution. Drug, sex, rock, rock and roll, all that kind of stuff. The 13th generation, notice one of their qualities is they are risk takers. That number for the 13th generation is 13. <laughs> the millennial generation is 11. Now here's what surprised me. I was really very surprised, so I had to kind of read and try to confirm that this appears to be true. But the researchers claim that this is going to, this is going to hold. They think the Generation Z, the iGen, is, is old enough that they think this pattern is going to hold. You notice I told you that they were physically non-sensual. That's not the same as necessarily being moral in the mind. They're physically non-sensual, they're reclusive, they're cautious, they're living on their, the virtual relationships. Well, the number of what we're discussing here, the sexual partners in terms of the real world, drops to five again. It doesn't necessarily mean they're more moral. It means that they're, <laughs> it's, things are playing out in the virtual world more than the real world. And they're the first generation that really has, is doing this. Now, I've spent enough time on all that. We need to go turn over, and we need to really focus now on the second portion. 
Now, the reason I've highlighted all of this is I've tried to show you, um, just give you a general sense of what our American society has, has, is going on and has been going on now for the past 75 years or so. And you can see that there's a, there is a significant amount of tension and drama, and there's a significant amount of, 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 of trouble between the generations. Now, let's go to the, another concept, and we leave this behind and get back to Scripture. If you go to our third point in the back, I'd like to call your attention to something here. Generational sin. Now, generational sin is an old problem. It is also an acute American problem. To let you know how old of a problem generational sin is, generational sin was recognized by God as a pretty much a standard potential feature of God's relationship with His people and people's relationship one to another. And so if we go to the commandments, Exodus chapter 20, we see this in the description of our early commandments. So if we'll go to Exodus 25 and 6, as it begins to describe the second commandment, we have in verse 5 and 6, under the second commandment, it says... I'm in Exodus 20. I'm going to read for you now. You'll recognize this. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord, am a jealous God, visiting, now here's the interesting part, of course, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children into the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Hmm. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers, and we intuitively believe that means forefathers, fathers and mothers, upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. Now, that is essentially repeated, that concept. It's easy for you to recall that. Probably you've heard it before. In Exodus 34, if you turn over a few pages, Exodus 34, the commandments are being discussed again. And again, we have similar language. I'm going to read from Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. It says, The Lord passed by before him and proclaimed, the Lord God is merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So we have this problem of generational sin. Now, in my opinion, that generational sin is an acute problem in American culture over the last 80 years. If we track things from 1940 to the present time, 2024, and we look at the various generations, looking at the beginning point from the GI generation, bump, 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 down to the present youngest generation that we can identify, Generation Z, the iGen, we can see that there are things that are happening between the generations that probably shouldn't have happened. In fact, almost certainly should not have happened. So what's going on? What's going on? Well, it takes us back to our beginning point where we started. One generation can strengthen another or one generation can damage another. And it has to do with whether or not the older generation is properly teaching and the younger generation is teachable. So what's going on is this. The younger generation, for generation after generation now, for about five or six generations, at least four, at least four, but the younger generations are learning the wrong things from their elders. Whether or not the elders are failing to do the proper teaching, or whether the younger generation is unteachable, might be a little hard to decipher. But they're learning the wrong things. And I think that really is the explanation of understanding these commandments and the possible curse that's described in Genesis 20, and, excuse me, Exodus 20 and Exodus 34, when we talk about the third and fourth generation. So why does it extend to the third and fourth generation? Why did God say the third and fourth? Why didn't He say to the eighth generation, the tenth generation, the fortieth generation? 
Why is it the third and fourth generation? Well, I, I have an answer. I'm not sure, I'm 100% sure I'm correct, but I'll give you my answer here in a moment. But I'd like to give you a quote from a, a, a writer and a researcher and a preacher. I don't like everything this man writes. His name is John Piper. But he has something good to say here that I believe is accurate and I agree with. And he's describing sin. And here's his statement. Sin is like a contagious disease. My children do not suffer because I have it. They catch it from me and suffer because they have it. Sin is like a contagious disease. My children don't suffer because I have it. They catch it from me and suffer because they have it. And that's the heart of the problem. So why does it extend to the third and fourth generation? I believe it's because that's the lifespan connection from which we can learn sinful habits from our parents, our grandparents, and our great-grands. Now, you don't, you're not likely to learn much from your great-great-great-grandparent because you didn't know your great-great-great-grandparent. In fact, you might not even know, have the slightest idea who that person was. If I asked you to name him by name, name her by name, you probably couldn't do it. Or maybe a few of you could, but you probably can name your parent and you probably remember them well. Many of you can remember your grandparents, and some of you have the blessing of knowing and remembering your great-grandparents. And you can say that for three or four generations, there has been an impact on my life because of them. So everybody's circumstances are different in this area. I knew my father very, very well. He lived till 97. We had a real good relationship, in my opinion. I'm not sure what he thought, but I think he would say that. <laughs> he never actually told me things like that. He wasn't particularly sentimental <laughs> and didn't really open up much. Typical of the GI generation, you know, they didn't really open their hearts much. But I did not know his father. I did not know my father's father at all. He died before I was born. So I didn't learn much from my great-grandfather unless it came through my dad. Or rather, my grandfather. I didn't learn much from my grandfather unless it came through my father. Now, this connection by which we can learn sinful habits from our parents or our grandparents and perhaps our great-grands, um, I believe is what's the, 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 the problem that has been plaguing much of our culture in recent decades, and it's a problem that can plague you. It's a problem that can be involved in your life. Now, I want to shift from all this generalization that we've been doing because I've been talking about the big picture, and I want you to start to think about yourself now and where you fit into this paradigm. So the first thing you can ask yourself is, of the generation that you are, to what degree do you, do you exhibit some of the negative qualities of that generation? Now, you may say to yourself, I exhibit very few of them. If you're a millennial here this morning... And you've heard me say the millennials, in general, are entitled and spoiled. That's pretty hard language. But I didn't make it up. You could ask yourself, well, to what degree have I taken on that negative attitude? Or, if you're of my generation, and you say, well, I'm a 13th generation, and I say it's typical for many of my generation to be morally ambivalent, sort of morally, I don't care, I have no real compass, I have no moral compass, to what degree have I absorbed that? So that's the first question you can ask yourself. Or if you're a boomer, or whatever your generation is, to what degree have I absorbed any of the negative aspects, negative attitudes, unbiblical attitudes, that are present in a large degree of my generation. So think about that. Think about that and, and be, be courageous enough to think about that seriously to yourself. You don't necessarily have to talk about it, but you could really think deeply in this area and say, have I, you know, am, am I suffering from this generalization that is generally accurate or am I doing, a, doing better in that respect because I'm the exception to the general rule? Am I an exception? Now, next, 
as we go to the last part of the outline, I want to say that all of the problems we've been talking about don't necessarily have to be the way it is. That is to say, there doesn't have to be a lot of tension between the generations. There doesn't have to be a clash of worldview between the generation. There doesn't have to be these misunderstandings and these poor communications and these poor interactions. That doesn't have to be that way. And biblically speaking, we can break out of that problem and we can do better. Now we, I say we, that is, you can do better. I can do better. And perhaps as a group, our little community can do better. Our family can do better. As a church body, maybe we can do better. But we're not going to do better individually or as a family or as a congregation if we don't make a significant attempt to be seriously looking at this problem. Because if we simply drift along, we're going to drift with the culture. You say, oh, I won't drift with the culture. I make my own way. Hogwash. You don't even see the culture. You don't even perceive the current that you're floating in. Like the fish in the Gulf Stream. The Gulf Stream, 24 hours a day, is carrying that fish two or three miles per hour, 24 hours a day, northward, in a river that's 60 miles wide. He doesn't see that he's drifting northward. He thinks he's swimming, just, just swimming around, making his own choices. Lo and behold, over the course of a week, he's drifted north hundreds of miles. So it is with a culture. If you aren't conscious of it, if you're not paying attention, if you're not looking for it, if you're just kind of going with the flow, you probably are certainly drifting with the culture and taking on the negative qualities that your generation exhibits. Unless you say, hmm, I'm going to try to identify them. I'm going to try my best to resist those negative qualities. Does this make any sense to you? I hope I'm relating to you all. So let's get on to the outline here with some tips. So I've got five general points that I'd like you really to reflect on. And our beginning area, I'm just going to say, we don't have to be subject to the intergenerational dynamic that creates tension and clashing worldviews. We don't necessarily have to be subject to this tension and drama, to the clash. And so we have some biblical precepts about generational interaction that can help us in this, and we can resist this. So let's go to the New Testament, and you're going to find that the book of 1 Timothy is a wealth of information in this area. So I encourage you to listen to what I have to share from the wisdom of 1 and 2 Timothy, the two epistles that Paul writes to this young man. First point. The differences between the generations can be observed, but they can also be appreciated and honored in respectful ways. We're going to observe the differences. Now, to say that there's going to be zero differences between the generations in a fallen world, is, I think, is unrealistic because we simply do not have the same life experiences. So Generation Z cannot look exactly at the world the way... I don't know, the GI generation did because Generation Z can only understand the experiences of the, you know, being barefoot and hungry by reading it in a book rather than living it out for three or four or five years in their teenage life. So they can't really look exactly at the world in the same way when the experiences are different. But, but, and this is a really big but, but, If the older generation does its job of teaching, if the younger generation is teachable, and if we're applying biblical precept, there doesn't need to be a lot of drama and tension between them. So, 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy chapter 5, please note this. It says, now this is advice of Paul to Timothy. He says, rebuke not an elder, but entreat him as a father and the younger men as brethren, the elder women as mothers, the younger as sisters with all purity. So Paul is giving young Timothy as a young adult now, very young adult, he's giving him some advice. 
he says, rebuke not an elder. Now, that word elder there is the word, basically the Greek word presbyteros. But it's not really referring to a minister. It's referring to an elder as in a, a person who is, is somewhat older than you. Just like the word elder in verse 2 is referring to someone who's considerably older. Now, entreat him as a father. Entreat. We don't use that word entreat. So, this is telling us something. If you as a young man want to speak to an older man, it doesn't matter what you think of that older man really. If you admire him or you don't admire him, it tells, says you ought to entreat him as a father. Entreat. It means you, if you're going to speak to him, you better speak to him with a measure of respect. Amen. Whether he really deserves the respect or not isn't the point. Really. Not really. In your mind, he may have a lot of failings, grievous failings. But you better think twice before you march up and give him a good scolding because you and your great wisdom at 25 have a lot of things to tell that man who's 55 and you perceive he needs to be straightened out. Well, it could be that you're in violation of this particular passage. And if he needs straightening out, maybe he needs to hear it from another 55-year-old man. Or maybe he needs to hear it from a 75-year-old man not from someone who, from his point of view, is still rather green in life. Any more than you as a 25-year-old would like to be scolded by someone who's 14. Which I'm sure you would not. And you're not going to receive what they say. You're going to say, what do you know about the world? Well, <laughs> now th these verses now tell us about how we should interact one with another... In generationally, there should be a, a measure of respect here that is important. And there are other passages that speak to this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, let me read verse 22. 2 Timothy 2.22 reads like this. It tells a young man to flee youthful lusts and follow after righteousness, faith, charity, and peace. All right, so there's more that could be said. And if I had more time, I'd read the verses out of Titus who kind of reinforce this basic concept. That if we, if we attempt in respectful ways to interact with, with the generations, we have, there's a burden on the younger generation to treat with honor and respect the elder generation. Now let's go to the elder generation because our second point is this. The elder generation needs to lead. They need to lead. But they cannot lead well through presumption or privilege but rather by good example and instruction. Now this is imperative that the elder generations understand this. That their credibility is going to be grossly destroyed, seriously damaged. If you lead through presumption or privilege and you say, well, because I'm old, you have to look at me in a good light. Or because I hold a particular office. Or because I have this or I have that you're not going to gain the respect of the younger generation, even if they do hold their tongue. Even if they do their part and say, well, I'm not going to march up and give you a good lecture, they may be quietly lecturing you in their heart. So you have to lead by good example and instruction. 2 Timothy 3.10 2 Timothy 3.10 Paul speaks of his own example. Paul says to Timothy, you have fully known my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, long-suffering, charity, and patience. So those are the qualities that an elder generation should be able to honestly say, I think I'm doing okay in this area. I've been a person of patience, charity, purpose, long-suffering, faith, my manner of life. I've been honorable. I've been honest. I've been moral. I've been, I, I have something... I think I have something to offer here. Well, <clears throat> in the case of Paul, he did. And I hope that the elder generation can say, uh, my example and instruction has been, been good. All right, now third, the younger generation should have a disposition to follow the godly and the faithful of their elders. Okay, so the younger generation needs to look for models, look for examples look for mentors, look for those among the elder generation that they can say, I think that person's done a pretty good job. 
and I'd like to be kind of like them. Maybe not in every respect like them, but they have a particular quality I admire, so I'm going to aspire to that direction. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 14 and 15 uh, talk about this. I won't read that. You can look at that on your own. Now, point D is a particularly important one. This is extremely important. All right, are you ready? Everyone pay attention on point D. If your mind's been wandering, zoom back in with me for just a couple of minutes, and we'll wrap up our Bible study here this morning. All right, are you ready? Faith is passed from one generation to the next, not generally, not generally, but from one particular older person to another particular younger person. This is sometimes called discipleship. Now, for you that are of an elder generation, and you want someone of a younger generation to adopt your faith, they're not going to do it automatically, most likely. And that's because we live in a culture that is the undergirding current. So if you do not give them particular specific instruction from one specific particular person to another particular specific person, the faith will not transfer very well. It does not generally just transfer. Now let me give you a quick illustration to, 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 to emphasize this point, and I think it's a valid point. If I take myself, I've always enjoyed and have some aptitude for mathematics. So when I was young, I learned algebra, I learned trigonometry, and I learned calculus. I did not learn any of those on my own. I had instructors and textbooks that taught me in that progression. Algebra, trigonometry, and calculus. Now if I say to myself, one of my sons seems to have a particular aptitude, I think, for mathematics. He seems to have a mind that's kind of like mine, and I would like him to learn mathematics. So what we're going to do, let's just, I'll just take Seth. Say he's my youngest son. I said, I'd like Seth to be good at mathematics kind of the way I was, for whatever reason. Or it could apply to anything, any other field of knowledge. I could say, Seth, we need to spend a lot of time together so that you can learn algebra and trigonometry and calculus. So let's, let, let's, let's go on a hike. Let's go skiing together. Let's, let's go build a fence together. Let's cut firewood together. Let's, uh, let's do some chores together. Let's go and spend some time on maybe a little vacation to go camping together. That's all great. And a little bit of the way I think might rub off. But certainly algebra, trigonometry, and calculus will not rub off. No matter how many hours we spend hiking or fishing or digging post holes or just generally hanging out and enjoying each other's company and becoming close in many ways, but not in that way. If I want him to know algebra, trigonometry, and calculus, I'm going to have to teach algebra and teach trigonometry and teach calculus, or someone I trust is going to have to impart that knowledge to him. Now, that's the gen one of the general problems we have as Christians in this generational problem. We assume that as being a good father, spending time with your children and doing these things, that they're going to absorb everything that you have to offer. They will absorb some things by simply spending time with you. But if you want them to understand doctrine, if you want to understand them to understand a lot of particulars about your faith, it has to be taught. You have to teach it, or someone you trust is going to have to teach it. If you want them to have a proper understanding that the Bible is the authority for life, and then maybe you hold the opinion that the King James Bible is better than the other translations, which is my opinion, then you're going to have to explain particularly why that is so. You can't just say, hey, just use the King James Bible because I do. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. You can't just say, well, you know, I've always believed in the Trinity. You ought to believe in the Trinity, son, the way I do. That's not going to be good enough. I've always believed in this or that doctrine. That's not good enough. It has to be taught. You have to impart the faith, particularly from one particular person to another particular person of another generation, specifically topic by topic by topic, 
And that's a big job. There's a lot of, that's, that's a lot of work. This is a big calling. And this is one of the failings of the generations that have gone before us. They tend to just assume that their children are going to be a lot like them. That's probably the failing of the GI generation. They worked hard. They understood a lot of things. They were sent to war and were slaughtered in Europe and Japan. They were dutiful. They came home and they put their head down. They went to work. And they thought, if I just, all I have to do for my children is just feed them and clothe them and spank them when they disobey. And they did all that. But it wasn't enough. It was a, it was a lot. And they're to be respected. And, but it wasn't enough. If they had a failing, that was it. And that would probably be about their only failing as a generation. They had a lot of wonderful qualities. Subsequent generations have done even a poorer job. A much poorer job. Now we want to not be like that. So our faith is passed from one generation to the next, not generally, but from one particular older person to another particular younger person in discipleship. Now let's look at just a couple of verses. We're kind of winding down, so stay with me. 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 2, you'll notice that Paul refers to Timothy as his dearly beloved son. Now he wasn't the father of Timothy. But he said, I refer to you as my dearly beloved son. And he does that also in the book of 2 Timothy. He opens by calling him his beloved son. Now that means that they had a special relationship. And that Paul had mentored Timothy. Particularly, specifically mentored Timothy. Didn't mentor lots of young men. Mentored Timothy. And Timothy apparently was teachable. And had followed the teachings of Paul. He didn't follow generally the teachings of all kinds of people. He followed Paul's teaching. So there was a discipleship. There was a mentorship. There was a relationship that was a bit like a father teaching a son. Now what's interesting, that in verse 5, we have a very interesting statement here. And this offers some encouragement to people who may have family problems. Now I'm not here to diminish the importance of fathers and fatherhood, but I'd like you to look at verse 5. Verse 5 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, it says, Paul said, When I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith that is in thee, when I think about the excellent faith in you, Timothy, I am reminded of someone. You remind me of someone, Timothy, who had excellent faith just like your excellent faith. That faith first dwelt in thy grandmother Lois and thy mother Eunice. And what do we know about Timothy's father? Almost nothing. Paul says that the faith in this case was transmitted by two women. Two ladies transmitted the faith to young Timothy. Lois and Eunice, according to Paul, were responsible for the faith of Timothy. And Paul was, in some sense, a, 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 a um, surrogate father. But of course, Paul was traveling around a lot, and Timothy may have traveled some with him. So, one of the things I'd just like to emphasize as we kind of wrap this up. This discipleship is not dependent on simply fathers. But it is dependent on particular specific people. And so for families in which there is no father around, and there's plenty of people that we know in which the father, for whatever reason, is out of the house, or he's just not a particularly good father. For those of you who are ladies, who are mothers or grandmothers, and you're worried about your grandchildren or your children or your grandsons, and you say, oh goodness, it's a lost cause. Without a father, there's no hope. That is not true. And I'm citing this passage here to prove it. There is hope. And God is full of good grace that is available to those who pick up the ball and do the very best they can with what they've been dealt. And there are other illustrations in history of men who turned out quite well who had no father or whose father was essentially absent. George Washington is one of them. And there are others. So there is hope in this respect. Finally, 
after we leave this last point there, that faith is passed particularly from one elder to another, someone of the next generation, or maybe two generations down. Our final point is this. We need to view ourselves not isolated really in generations. So I spent the, you know, early on looking at the five or six generations here, and I don't know if that's really the best way to look at your life. I'm not sure that that really is. There's a lot of validity to that. There's a lot of interest there. There's a lot, maybe a lot of value. But I'm not sure it's the best to really stress the distinctions. Instead, I think there's certain wisdom in understanding there's a continuity. And there ought to be a continuity between the generations. Now, the book of Joel has a little passage near the beginning that I've always landed upon and thought was most interesting. Most interesting. So turn in closing to Joel chapter 1. I'd like to suggest there's beauty in seeing ourselves in a long genetic stream of Israelite people that spans one generation after the next. One, gen- one long genetic river. One long genetic stream through time. I'm not isolated. I'm a part of a genetic river, a genetic stream of Israelites. And it's, it's, it's my turn right now to fulfill a particular role. And then someday I'll, my turn will be over and I'll go on to my reward and it'll be someone else's turn. Or maybe there's another analogy. Instead of viewing it as a long genetic stream, it may be viewed as like a relay race. One runner takes his turn and the next runner takes their turn, but they have to pass that baton on to the next runner if it's a track race. So there's beauty in seeing ourselves in a long genetic stream of Israelite people that spans one generation after the next. Joel chapter 1 verse 3 speaks of this. Tell ye your children of it, and let your children tell their children, and their children another generation. We have four generations connected, all playing their role to pass on the value and the faith in a way that's useful and pleasing to God. Thank you for your time today. God bless all of you. And with that, we shall close. Yeah.